Welcome to The Mend, a podcast to learn about services and support for victims and survivors of crime. My name is Anna Nasset, and I am your host for this bi-monthly podcast and show sponsored by the Center for Crime Victim Services here in Vermont. Today on the show, we have the wonderful Keith Gosland here to discuss services and support for the LGBTQ community members. The show was created to take a deeper look at services and organizations and concepts for victims and survivors of crime. We want to acknowledge our healing process and provide resources, not only in our state, but throughout the country that could benefit victims and survivors of crime as they begin to mend. And today we're going to be looking at some of those immediate needs and resources, as well as history for the LGBTQ community. As always, I like to begin with a trigger warning. While our goal is to create a safe place to communicate on this show, sometimes we do tell past stories, talk about our mental health, or other issues that may be triggering. So as always, please listen at your own discretion. Today, as I said, I have the wonderful Keith here. Keith is a native of Plainfield, Vermont. For the past four years, Keith has been one of the co-hosts of All Things LGBTQ, a weekly news and interview program produced by Orca Media and Montpelier. Keith recently retired, congratulations, Thanks. after working for 47 years for the state of Vermont. Um, most of this was in admissions department for the Vermont State Hospital. Keith has been an incredible historical community activist and organizer of the LGBTQ plus equality and inclusion since the 1980s. Keith is a recipient of the National Sexual Violence Resource Center's Visionary Voice Award. He was nominated by the Vermont Network for Domestic and Sexual Violence, and the award was presented by uh, Senator Patrick Leahy. I'd like to read the statement that was submitted by the Executive Director Karen Tronsgaard-Scott on behalf of this nomination. Keith was involved with the Sexual Assault Crisis Team, SACT, for more than 20 years both as a volunteer and board chair. During his tenure, he worked with others to establish a shelter for victims and survivors of sexual and violence that extends services to women and men. He shared his personal stories of sexual violence and bullying in public forums and helped train Vermont law enforcement on a bias and hate motivated crimes. Keith has worked with hundreds of male survivors over the years, offering them support, advocacy, and most importantly, compassion and hope. He has educated nurses, law enforcement officers, state attorneys, and other advocates about the experience of gay sexual violence survivors. It is truly an honor to have you here today, Keith. Keith and I know each other because we serve on a panel every year together. And since then I've gotten together many times with another friend of ours for just check-ins and lunches. And he is just really, truly um, a Vermont treasure and a national treasure for the work that he has done over the years. So thank you for being here. Thank, thank you for inviting me. And before we even start the rest of this, I want to acknowledge the importance of, as you referenced, the three of us getting together and just being real with each other. There is, there is, and, and one of the things that I would always put out to victim survivors of sexual violence or domestic violence is creating your own community of other victims and survivors, because there's a conversation that happens among us 
that doesn't happen at any other time. You know, as, and I always give you credit for this, you know, as victim survivors, we become incredibly good at keeping secrets and avoidance and deflecting. You know, somebody can come up to us and say, so how are you? Oh, you know, I'm okay. Mm -hmm. When in truth, I spent last night experiencing nightmares and flashbacks, but when it's the three of us sitting together at lunch, I don't have to explain. I don't have to make excuses. I can just look at you and say, you know, this is kind of a rocky time. And we can just look at each other. And now it's the virtual hug. But before we would just sort of lean in, put our hand on top of each other, or just hold each other. And that does more than, than anything else that we could ask for. So I, so I could not agree you. more. Thank you. And really for me, I mean, meeting you and our other friend um, were some of the first people that I started my journey with professionally and personally. And our times together, it really is just like, I can just kind of drop down and be like, I'm not okay. Um, or even the emails that we send, just you know, a little like, hey, how are you doing? They mean the world to me because it is that time when I can just let go a little bit and share. So thank and, you. And, and I wanna give a shout out and a plug for the Center for Crime Victim Services because one of the things that they did several years ago, which is what resulted in our getting to meet each other is that when they did their advocates training and I'm gonna put this out for any organization or professional who's looking at putting training together, rather than bringing in a victim survivor to, to share their experience, they brought together a panel of people because as much as we say, you know, you're not the only one, there is something that happens when it's five of you sitting side by side and telling your stories Yes, that validates what it is that you're saying, provides support for each other, and it gives a stronger impact to those people who are sitting there asking for information and asking for the training. So the Center for Crime Victim Services, however it is that that, that came about, landed on exactly where I think that training should go. Absolutely. I could not agree more. And as you know, they're the sponsor for this show. And I just really love their different formats for communicating to so many different people and educating on so many different ways. You know, I love that we have this show that someone can watch, they can listen to, they can, you know, be learning from just so many different professionals, um, as well as, you know, when we would do these in-person panels as well. It's really, really powerful, the work and, that they're doing. And what they built into it also was, we all met beforehand. We got to hear each other's stories. So if there was a trigger in your story for me, we were aware of it, we could anticipate, we could prepare for it, we could figure out how that would happen. They created time for us before the presentation started where it was all of us in a room together just saying, okay, are, are we ready for this? Checking in, how's everybody doing? 
who needs support, the order in which people would tell their stories and it shifts. You know, today yeah. I might feel, okay, I'm, I'm ready to say this. And there are other times where it's like, you know, I'm feeling a little tender. You know, I'm feeling yeah. a little vulnerable. I need somebody else to start this. And then they created safe space for us after our presentation and said to the participants, you know, you know, we're going to take a break. The presenters are going away by themselves. Please do not try to engage them in the conversation until they come back out and they're ready to engage with you. And here, here was the piece that I truly appreciated. It's, and please do not follow them into the bathroom and try to talk to them. Yes. People don't get what a trigger that can be for us. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think, you know, you and I both, you know, we spend a lot of time presenting and we've used to travel all over and maybe we will again someday. Like we don't get that level when we're presenting. I've had so many times people follow me into the bathroom. I've had women try and take selfies with me in the bathroom after I present. And it's just, it's really the way that they've set up their programming, I think is so strong and it really it really allows our voices to shine while we're being very well cared for. And I think that's a huge thing. Yes. For anybody doing programming. That's the model to use. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So now you all know how we met. Um, <laughs> let's get into the questions. Um, absolutely. So thank you so much for joining us and you know, you, like I said earlier in your bio, like you have been an activist and advocate for LGBTQ plus rights since the 80s, which is really amazing. Um, and you are a lifelong Vermonter. So could you share a little bit with our listeners how you got pulled into this work and what that's looked like for you kind of spanning the last 40 years, which is a very big question, but. Oh, I know. It actually, I avoided talking about any issues relative to my sexual assault for years. And part of it is we still do not do a really good job at talking with people about intimacy and sexual practices and consent. We don't do a good job talking to men about sexual orientation, gender identity. You know, as, as I would tell people in training, I learned to be a homosexual from the heterosexual community. I learned how to be a gay man when I found my own community, when I found other people who felt the same way that I did. Mm -hmm. So growing up, there was not a whole lot of support you know, and as I frequently say to people, I grew up as like a queen without a country. I had in my youth, I had more demonstrative feminine mannerisms than I do now. So I, and my community was like 1500 people. My parents were both prominent members of the community. My brothers were all-star athletes. So we were somebody, and we literally lived in the middle of town. 
So I was somebody who was very noticeable. And the messages that I got, and they were not intentional, was that I was worth less, that my life didn't matter as much, my contribution didn't have the same worth. So in some sense, my activism and all of that was an overachievement to achieve a feeling of just breaking even. So that when my sexual assault occurred, you know, it was, I, I didn't know that I had the option of consent for any sexual practice because, you know, the people around me would approach me saying, oh, I heard this is what you like to do, so I want you to do it to me. I didn't know I could say no. So right, right. That, that, that filter just wasn't there at all. So when it was this group of five young men, they were all drinking, they were just out driving around, wasting time, and there I was. And I was the town queer and everybody knew it. And as I, I have said in presentations, I became the evening's entertainment. And for me, it's something that I deal with on an ongoing basis. It's something that's always prevalent. I need to be aware of triggers. You know, large groups where they're drinking, I get incredibly uncomfortable. I'm always looking for how do I get out? You know, there are times that someone will approach me in a very intimate gesture and I shut down. Yep, you know, yep. and it's an automatic response. But for those people who were participating, those people who assaulted me, my guess is they probably don't think about it at all. Right, that right. it was something they were entitled to do. That's part of the messaging that we put out is that there were certain people who have greater privilege, that they have a dominance over your life that you don't control or you don't have. You know, and also one, I mean, it took me 25 years to finally say, wait a minute, I need to deal with this. You know, relationships failing, um, being anorexic, because, you know, here was in my head, you know, if I dis, well, and I now know this by, by virtue of sort of talking through it, but at the time it wasn't necessarily a rational process, but I, but I became anorexic because, oh, if I disappear, if you can't see me, then you're not going to find me sexually desirable or I am not going to be an object. And it took years to realize that my appearance had absolutely nothing to do with the sexual violence. You know, it, you know, and we keep going back to power and control. They were entitled to do this. The other sort of the other message I got was, you know, if, if the only thing I'm good for and the only thing for which you notice me is sex, then I'm going to become incredibly good at it. And in presentations, I say, I got so good, I could suck the paint off a Chevy. It's like, yeah, I know. Every now and then, <laughs> it, 
you know, it, it's our own little victim survivor humor. Every now and then we, we throw it in to give ourselves a little emotional room. Absolutely. Uh, oh, and I, I know it's one of your follow-up questions, but I'll just throw it in right now. When I finally said, I need to deal with this and went to look for resources, there weren't any. You know, first there wasn't any resources for men and they specifically were not identified resources for the LGBTQ plus community. You know, I, there was one morning that I just sat on my couch and said, okay, I need to find something. And the Vermont network was already there. And I want to acknowledge that they were incredible women who were brave and who had a strong unified voice who created a network to try and reach out and provide services and education. And without the work that those women did, I, I wouldn't have had any place to start. But what, you know, I'm sitting on my couch, you know, it, much like now in, you know, my comfortable sweatpants. Yep. Curled up with my coffee. And I started calling the names on the list and said, I'm looking for services for a male victim. And the first couple of places that I called, it was sort of a stumbling phone call. And, and then all of a sudden, everyone I called started giving me back the same answer. So it told me that the network was talking among themselves. And it was, we will provide services to whoever approaches us. Right. You know, th th thank you for the philosophy, but it still doesn't answer the, what do you specifically have that identifies the needs of male survivors? Because male survivors, the first thing that we need to wrestle with is, oh my God, I didn't think this could happen to men. And for straight cisgendered men, it's this, oh my God, am, am I really gay? And I don't know it. Right. Did you, did you see something that, that I haven't acknowledged yet? And it creates this, this conflict within themselves about what is my identity? And if you are a male who discloses you just became less of a male. You know, that there is this perception that if I am male, I should have been able to fight. I should have been able to defend myself. And that's a typical conversation about sexual violence is the fight or flight. And in my case, I could do neither. You know, I was stuck there for a variety of reasons. So, but what it, created for me or where it led me is until men, gay men start talking among ourselves about our shared experience and then approach programs saying, okay, what can we create together that those resources aren't gonna happen? If there is no one approaching them with a need, they're not gonna create anything in response to that. And actually 
it was very interesting. One of the first really strong resources that I found as a gay male survivor was an organization in Australia. Wow. And I happened to send them an email and they responded within a matter of hours. And they kept in contact with me for years to make sure I'm okay. How are things going? It was a phenomenal process. Wow. Well, the Australians know a thing or two. <laughs> I've heard They're that. They're doing all right. <laughs> They're doing all right over there. That's amazing. Wow. Um, how do you feel that, you know, so you kind of started to push for more services here in our state and is that kind of what started to really bring you into that more activist role? Um, and how has that grown for you? And how have you seen the state respond and evolve over the years? Actually, I stepped into becoming involved with the sexual violence program because my sister-in-law approached me and said, we need someone with the organizational experience that you have to help us. And it was before I even made a public statement or even told my family about being a survivor. And I said, yes. And I think it was one of those stepping off the cliff without fully acknowledging I'm stepping off the cliff because once I got there and started becoming involved in the work of the organization, all of that personal stuff landed on me full tilt. Mm -hmm. and, and actually it was an interesting response. The, there was the, the article that was in the Burlington Free Press in, in 2001 about my experience as a survivor of sexual violence. And as I shared with you, when I was initially being interviewed I thought it was going to be on, you know, the sort of living section, you know, this brief little human interest story. And they put it on the front page. So there it is. So now everyone knows. Yeah, it was like, there are no secrets, which also meant I needed to call my family and tell my family stuff they didn't know. My relationship with my father had always been difficult. You know, there wasn't a strong emotional bond between each other. But when I called him to say, this is what is about to be in the press and you need to know it. His response back was to share with me a story about a family member who is a pedophile. And it was the most emotionally vulnerable he had ever been with talking with me. And you know, my question to him was, did he ever hurt you? To which my father said, no, but I now need to call my 70 year old sister to ask her if he, <clears throat> I wow. mean, so you, you have no idea. Also the article, which was on the front page was printed several days before Plainfield's old home days, which is when the town of Plainfield celebrates itself. And at that point in time, not only was I on the, the Plainfield Select Board, I was the chair of the Select Board, oh, which wow. made me the mayor. 
and the select board were the grand marshals for the parade, which meant we were going to be the first things you saw. And I'm like, what's going to happen here? And as we were marching, the applause was not what I had expected. And all day long, people kept coming up to me and saying, thank you. And this is my story. So that's what brought to me the importance of telling our stories. One, because for us, it's finally working through, I don't have to keep this a secret. I'm really taking away a lot of the power that it has, but I'm also allowing a venue for other victims and survivors to stand up and say, no, I'm not alone and here is my story. As victims and survivors, we can sort of, this is not a, oh, I acknowledge what's happened. I've done this work, I'm done. You know, it's this ever shifting continuum. There may be one day that we can sit in front of a group of people and feel incredibly confident about telling our stories. There's other times when I just need to be home alone curled up in my Sherpa throw and watching my guilty pleasure movies because emotionally that's all I can take in and giving ourselves permission to truly feel what we're experiencing at the time without having to make excuses and that Whatever that emotion is, however we as a victim survivor respond, that's a valid and legitimate response. I could not agree more. Um, you just hit on so many things. I got very teary-eyed when you were telling me about the parade. <laughs> but yeah, I think that you know one thing I learned from the Vermont Network, because they kind of helped us with this panel that we do together, and it was the first time I'd ever spoken publicly. And I was working with a woman named Chani and um, she's like, well, maybe at the end, you want to talk about some of your self-care. And at the time, like, I was like, well, what, what do you mean? What do you mean self-care? What, what's that? I was like, <laughs> um, I lay under a stack of quilts and watch Gilmore Girls. She's like, well, then that's your self-care. I was like, I don't do yoga. I don't meditate. I don't eat particularly well. Um, she's like, that's okay. Like, you your self-care is giving yourself permission to do what you need to and that there's not this sorry my computer's doing a weird thing whoopsies okay we're back sorry okay. um <laughs> i was gonna say there, there there is not one response that no. all of us based upon whatever it is that we've brought with us to that point we're going to do the things that work for us. Now, sometimes our solutions end up becoming a problem. You know, for me, I have incredible nightmares and flashbacks. So there was a period of time when I drank too much so that I was able to sleep. And then the drinking became the problem and I lost track of, and, and this is where it started. 
you know, but, and that's not that uncommon for victims and survivors, as well as, you know, some self-harming actions. But we need to give ourselves permission for whatever it is we're doing to get through the day and know that where we are right now does not have to be where we stay. Yes. That we can continue to move, that change is possible. And that's where the, you know, creating your community so that you have a safe place to go back to and say, you know, things are kind of hard right now. You know, can, can we share, you know, Indian food with each other and just be silly and tell tacky jokes and I don't have to explain why I'm relying on you for the jokes and I'm being quiet right now. Yes, um, absolutely. I mean, one of, the, one of the big movements about how we get through is this concept of resilience. And, you know, looking at particularly childhood abuse and those adverse childhood encounters and what it can create for emotion and physical problems later in life. And then all of a sudden they're discovering that, wait a minute, you know, you had multiple instances, but these things aren't happening for you. What changed for me, what helped me to get through the day step-by-step was my family and particularly my mother who even when she didn't know what was going on, created this safe home, this safe environment to come home to. You know, you don't have to make, you know, explanations. We love you unconditionally. You can come and just be here. And she continuously supported me in regardless of what I was doing based upon that unconditional love and acceptance premise. And for those of us who are victim survivors, to our friends and family around us, we can't tell you how important that is. Absolutely. I could not agree more. Um, yeah, for me, as I've really, like, once the crime stopped, has it ever stopped? I don't know. But having a lifetime of trauma as well, from the age of three till now, like for me, my space is so important. And like, you can see like my backdrop behind me with my pretty trinkets and my things and my sewing machines and like having this cocoon that I can be in is so very important to me. And, you know, we're in a pandemic right now. And for me, it's, there's a part of me that continues to come back to this default thing of like, well, th but this makes sense to me. Like I feel best when I'm at home. Because for so long, when I stepped out of my front door, I was in fear. So it yeah. felt safer to stay home. And so there's this kind of like this odd narrative that I experienced or just experience I'm having throughout the pandemic of being like, well, I'm good. Okay. I, I, I can just sit here and do my crafts and snuggle with my dog and watch my shows. And okay, that sounds perfect to me. And, and we all need to give ourselves permission to create that sanctuary. Mm -hmm. One, and, and it took me years to realize exactly what was happening and sort of what was supporting it. But I always had sound around me. 
And there was one point at which I was walking through my home and realized there were chimes on absolutely every door, including the one going out to the second floor porch, you know, the back fire escape, so that if anyone were to try and come in, I would hear it. Yep, I do the Resort. same thing. Yeah, and it, it was like, ooh. And how that sanctuary looks, looks is different for all of us. <laughs> but, but being able to create it and giving yourself permission. And, you know, one of the things that I have in mind it are these silk yellow tulips that my mother gave me that anybody else looking at it, it would sort of say, but you have all of these house plants that really doesn't fit in. And it's like, you, you don't get it. This was a gift from my mother remembering her mother who was mm. my Nana with whom I had a very close and special relationship and who I went and stayed with so that she could be at home when she was getting ready to pass over. So to someone else, it doesn't really make sense, but for me, it's a very strong grounding element in my personal space. I love it. Yeah. Like I said, I have a lot of those little bits and treasures as well, like things that were, you know, little bits or pieces that were from my father's workshop. He passed away a couple of years ago. And, you know, like people are like, why do you have this little piece of wood sitting here? I'm like, because I need to, because yeah. it brings me comfort. And, and it ties me to, you know, my father who was always so protective of me and cared for me and his heart broke over the things that had happened to me. And, you know, it just, it brings me back into that place of knowing that I'm loved and I'm going to be okay. And I can, you know, get up tomorrow and do what I do um, and give myself permission to not do what I do as well. It's really, really important. Well, it, that brings out the sort of expectation based upon gender and our roles in this greater culture where men are, you're supposed to be tough and these are the things that are not supposed to bother you. You know, this is how you're supposed to lead your life. And these are the things that are supposed to be important to you. And being a survivor of sexual violence totally throws that off because it doesn't fit into that very traditional gender narrative that we all experience our gender in our own unique manner. You know, it, there is not a established proscribed, this is how you lead your life. And we're still really challenging and working on shifting that so that what we're supporting is a personal and an individual experience and, and that's what as victims and survivors we really need is an acknowledgement of our personal response and how this impacted us and how it influences the other part of our lives. 
and you know, being a male survivor and a gay male survivor, you know, creating and finding those resources are is difficult and they're far between. Some of the national organizations have started paying more attention to um, what the, the experience of men. You know, the, the current estimate is one in six men will have yep. experienced some type or degree of sexual violence within their lifetime. And looking at the case that just got filed with the Boy Scouts, there were over, I think, over 85,000 litigants who came forward and said, I experienced violence within the Boy Scouts. Why did we not know that? It is a staggering, staggering number. And you know that it doesn't represent all of them. Exactly. And, you know, it's, why didn't we know that? Yeah. Why was there nothing happening in response to it? What is it that we as a culture had done to silence those children from saying, or or not being able to provide services to them after this event had occurred that actually took their lives away from them. Absolutely. It's staggering. Cause that's everyone, all of those people are, you know, adults now and still we're, we're all still walking with that. And what, how was the, like how, they had to have known and there were just nothing was set up to, to serve, to, process to deal with this and it's really really sad and well, very no. upsetting and and it reinforces all of the t- those taboos in our culture about you know really not accepting varying social uh, varying sexual orientations gender identities there was one prescribed model if you don't fit within it well then we're we're just going to totally discount you in any experience that you might have and because scouts couldn't deal with gay or bisexual scouts, they created this silence that allowed perpetrators fertile ground to go in and abuse over 85,000 boys. I, it's staggering. It's, it's horrific. Yeah. It's staggering. It's horrific. Um, we have just chatted away for the last 40 minutes. So one, I'm going to ask you to come back on the show and talk specifically more about LGBTQ plus services, because we've really gone into this incredible conversation that I wasn't expecting around male victimization. And I am so grateful for you for just your transparency and yeah, this was not the interview I was expecting at all. And I'm really, really just my heart feels very full right now from all that you have shared today. Um, it's really incredible. I know some of the resources that specifically for male survivors, could you mention those? Yeah, I, I was going to say, you know, first, thank you. And, and, you know, I can never I can never say no to a sister. So, yes, I will come back. Um, OK, good. <laughs> The pr- predominant resources here in Vermont, um, and I'm going to put a plug for Mosaic, which is the new name for the sexual assault crisis team. They're based in Barrie. 
I worked with the sexual assault crisis team to create a shelter that had a commitment to both male and female survivors of sexual violence. We were the first in the country to employ that model. We also did a specific outreach to the LGBTQ plus community, the transgender community in particular, and survivors of bias and hate motivated crimes because there were no other shelters that would bring people in. Um, the other is the Pride Center in Burlington, which has a program called Safe Space, which was specifically devoted for LGBTQ survivors of trauma, sexual violence, hate crimes, domestic violence. The one aspect about the Pride Center to keep in mind is they have very specific hotline hours where Mosaic has a 24 hour a day, seven day a week hotline that's available. There, is, there are also more resources, male survivor and RAIN on a national basis that if you Google them, they have now specific support processes for men who have sex with men. Awesome. So good. Thank you. Just thank you so much. And yeah, we'll have you come back on here and we'll talk about more services for the LGBTQ plus community and maybe look at some information around hate crimes as well. I think that would be so good. But like you're just your voice today, everything you had to say, I'm just so in awe of all the work you do. Like I said, you're a Vermont treasure and a national treasure. And you've really just done incredible work and helped so many thousands of people throughout your career. So thank you. Thank you and, and your treasure as well. Don't forget that. Thank you. Um, I always like to close just with a short like positive message or sentence for our uh, listeners to walk away with. Do you have something you'd like to share? Oh, a a absolutely. And you know, in the era of COVID, one of the things that my family has found are like Zoom and texting and some of the social media. So we now have a nationwide weekly check-in with each other about, so how are y'all doing? What's going on? You know, and we always end each one with this tag, be safe, be kind. Be safe, be kind. That's it. Be safe, be kind to you, Keith. The Thank you. Thank you so much. And we'll have you back soon to talk some more. Um, thank you everyone for joining us this week on The Mend. As always, if you have any questions, you can email me, Anna at standupresources.com. Um, and if you have a chance to give us a little thumbs up on our video, or if you're listening on podcasts, to give us a rating that really helps the Center for Crime Victim Services be able to track um, our reach, because hopefully it's all over the world at this point. I'm your host, Anna Nasset. Thank you so much for joining me on The Mend. Be well, be strong, and goodbye. <laughs>